Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure we are ready to study the word this evening and for us to be in right relationship with God walking by the Spirit. That means that if necessary, we need to confess sin in silent prayer. So we'll just have a few moments of silent prayer before I begin, and then we'll be spiritually prepared, and I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful we can come together this evening just to study your word, to have our minds refreshed by the truth of your word, thinking through these details in this incredible episode that covers uh, four chapters in the book of Judges, and that that's a large chunk of, um, of text to go through, and it shows in terms of uh, proportion that you want us to pay a lot of attention to to this passage and the details that are in this passage. It's a much longer section than we have in uh, almost everyone except Samson. And Father, we pray that you would just open our eyes to the truth and help us to assimilate your word into our soul and be reminded that, that no matter what the external circumstances are in our lives or in the affairs of the world, that you are in control and that our responsibility is to trust you and go about our mission of being a witness both with our lives and with our lips, teaching and telling and explaining to others uh, what the wonderful free gift of salvation is and how we are to grow and mature as believers. And we pray that you would help us to think through all that we're covering this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so tonight we are going to do an overview. Just Think our way through this big section of Scripture, four chapters. And these aren't short chapters. These aren't ten-verse chapters or uh, five-verse chapters. These are long, long chapters and a long, detailed story. So we're going to do an overview and see how this sort of puts itself together, which is an interesting thing. This isn't there just because the writer just got a little diarrhea of the pen one day and decided to write out a whole lot more, but that all of this is intended by God for our benefit. And I'll point out some things as we go along because it, it's, it, it's parts of it don't seem to, to, to fit the way they do, they, things have gone in previous cycles of discipline. So just to remind us, We've got these three sections in Judges. The theme of Judges is how a nation goes from being focused on the Lord, and when they reject the truth of God's Word, when they reject the teaching of God's Word, then there's only one option, and you've already made the choice because you've made yourself the ultimate determiner of truth. So when you reject God's Word, you're saying, I know more than God does. I understand... History, I understand philosophy, I understand ethics, I understand science more than God does. And I can make up my mind as to what's right and wrong, and I can lead my life without any, any influence from God. Thank you very much. And when a nation does that, it, it, it perverts the nation because it's already, it, as it's already perverting the minds of people and distorting their whole perspective on reality, 
then it, when that becomes a massive movement, we see exactly what we've got in our country, except I think Israel was worse. Often we hear people say, it's so bad, how can it get worse? Well, we're not going down to the city square in Houston where they've erected major, you know, huge idols to uh, Milcom or Chemosh or Baal and where they are uh, sacrificing living infants in the fire. That's not happening. We're not there yet. And there's a lot of other things that were going on, and we're just not there. We, we see it in the, still in a lot of the dark corners and shadows of this country, but they're still mostly in the dark corners and in the shadows. Now, some of that more than we would like to admit is out in the open and is being exposed, but the people just seem to, uh, at least the way the media represents it, it's just sort of ho-hum, well, everybody has a right to do what they want to do. And so we're right back to the theme of judges, that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So the first section introduces us to this principle and the cycle that takes place. And this is important to understand, I think. I'll talk about the cycle in just a minute. But this is, this is the cycle of disobedience, a cycle, uh, then it goes to discipline, and then they are delivered. And then they just repeat the cycle all over again. And I think um, that's important to understand. These are cycles that have taken place in civilizations for the last four or 5,000 years, at least back to the flood. We don't know what happened in the civilizations before the flood. It probably wasn't any different. There was about 1,800 or 2,000 years before the flood. So it's probably pretty much the same thing. It's just that we don't have any information on that. The cycle in relation to leadership is demonstrated by the leaders that are are the focus of this book, starting with Othniel, who's the best, going to Samson, who's the worst, and they go from the one about whom nothing bad is said to one about whom nothing good is said. And then you see the paganization of the priests. Now remember the responsibility under the Mosaic law for teaching the word and teaching the law to the people was given to the priests, not the prophets. The prophets are the ones who represent God and who are going to indict the people for the disobedience, as we'll see uh, when we get down to uh, verse 8, 8 through 10, is an unnamed prophet indicting the nation for their for their disobedience. But the priest's job was to teach the people. And we only see one example of a priest in Judges. And that is the priest that comes along in about Judges uh, 18. And it turns out he's an apostate priest, and he's the grandson of Moses. So he's early in this stage, and that shows that the priesthood has apostatized, so there's no real source of truth, which is why when we get into this first part of, of, um, of Gideon, that when the angel of the Lord uh, appears to him, uh, his question in verse 13 is, well, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, if Yahweh is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And that's going to take us back to Leviticus 26. But he's ignorant of Leviticus 26 because he's pretty much ignorant of the law, the Torah, and uh, the Mosaic Covenant. So we see that, that because of the paganization of the priests, the people are ignorant. And Proverbs says where, is the, 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 where there's no vision, the people perish. And the word there for vision isn't a word that indicates uh, someone who, like who's the CEO of a company or the head of an organization has a vision for what he wants that, that organization uh, to be, and that's often how it is abused and misused from Scripture. The word for vision there has to do with revelation from God, and when nobody's teaching what God has revealed, then the people perish. When people don't know the Word of God, they, then the civilization is going to collapse. And so this is this is the overall structure. So we have this cycle of disobedience, discipline, and then deliverance. Disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. And that's a cycle in the judges. And we see that this is a cycle that takes place in the history of Israel. 
uh, both before the exile, we see it after the exile. We see something similar in the cycles of civilization that a number of different people have talked about, how you move from uh, slavery to freedom, and then as you move to prosperity, then you begin to fail the test of prosperity, and you go from prosperity uh, back towards uh, to, toward ingratitude, and then you move back towards slavery again. And this has been going on uh, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. That's what we're seeing today. When you look at the events that are going on in Ukraine and Russia, events that are going on in Africa, events that are going on in China, we are observing the cycles of civilization that have taken place throughout history. But one problem we have today is because some of these cycles uh, imitate a few things that we see in prophetic scripture, that there are people who abuse and misuse both the scriptures and believers by developing what I call eschatology porn. You're going to like that term. The definition of pornography from the Supreme Court ran something like this. Well, we don't really know what, how to define it, but we know it when we see it. That was one, one Supreme Court justice. But the, ultimately it came down to that which appeals to the prurient interest of the observer and inflames their sexual passions. That's, that's a good definition. Well, what we have with eschatology porn is people who are doing newspaper exegesis, even though they claim they're not, but they're doing a newspaper exegesis, and they're looking at current events and trying to figure out who's Gog, who's Magog. Look, all of a sudden we see an alliance between Russia and Persia. Ooh, uh, this means we must be getting close. And, uh, and, and all they do, you listen to them on the radio, you listen to them on YouTube videos. And what do they do? They inflame the curiosity and they sensationalize prophecy so that people get their focus all on Jesus is coming back soon. I can't tell you, people who've been in this congregation and who uh, are now with the Lord really thought the rapture was going to come in their life. Oops. Theologians did, but the theologians I'm thinking of did not get involved in this. The way this should be handled, not with the sensationalism that you hear in a lot of people, it's, it's how they present it sometimes more than what they're presenting. But you, you see this, eschatological porn, and you're just inflaming people's passions. You know, they get worried what's going to happen, oh, is, it, it, the rapture's going to occur, and they make decisions based on that. I've seen this through a lot of my life over the last 40 years, and, and they, see, they look at the economy, oh, we're going to see this collapse, and we're all going to be... Uh, scratching the ground for the, just the, any crumb we can find because the the uh, stock market's going to crash and the dollar's going to lose all of its value. And we go through these cycles of this, this inflammatory stuff, and it's always connected to prophecy, and you get all this stuff. We need to focus on the Word, focus on our job. These are the cycles of civilization. We don't won't know when it's not the cycle of civilization until we're face-to-face with the Lord, when we're raptured. Then we're going to go, ah, this wasn't a cycle to civilization. This was a part of the build-up to this moment. But we're not going to know it's that moment until it happens. And and people get distracted by this, and, and it's just amazing. We, need, we, we have to stick with what the Word says and what we learn from history. So anyway, what we have is this constant sliding into paganism, uh, throughout the, the time period of the judges, and we're now in this Gideon cycle. So what we see at the beginning is the deliverance. Uh, part one is talking about the deliverance from the Midianite oppression. Okay, that's in, really, that's in Judges 6, 7, and 8. So it starts off with the apostasy, which is only covered in half of the first verse, and then there's the um, 
divine discipline, which is explained in the next five verses, six, the second half of 1, 6, 1b, through verse 6. And then from 6, 7 through 8, 35, you see all, all of this. That's 94 verses. Add that up. I'm not going to do math in public. Seems to me that's 100, right? A hundred verses, that's a lot of verses for what's going on here, and that's not all of it. The second part is the story of the first king of Israel who is named Abimelech and is, is the illegitimate son of Gideon. And what's interesting there is that in, in that particular episode, you have uh, 57 verses in chapter 9. Now, if you've got a hundred verses that cover this whole period, uh, well, a hundred verses uh, just in six, seven, and eight, you've got a hundred verses, and then you've got fifty-seven verses in the next chapter. That's more than half of what you have in in just the story of the uh, oppression and the and the deliverance from the Midianites. That's a, that's a huge amount of scripture. So we've got forty-seven ver- or excuse me, uh, fifty-seven verses in chapter nine, and a hundred verses. That's a hundred and fifty-seven verses. Why in the world do we have so much attention being paid to this situation with Gideon and then Gideon's bastard son? That ought to be a question that people ask. I haven't read anybody in print that's asked that question. But when you take Bible study methods, one of the laws of Bible study methods is you look at different things. You look at contrast. You look at comparisons. You also look at proportion. And so if the Holy Spirit is giving 157 verses, the, the Holy Spirit is not known for being loquacious. He is known for having an economic use of words. And so 157 verses mean something, and we have to ask that question, and more importantly, we have to answer that question, which is what we'll try to focus on as we go through this. So the disobedience begins in verse 1 and just says the children of Israel uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord. The evil is defined with reference to the standard of God's character. It's not evil in the eyes of people because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil is defined by an immutable, external, objective, absolute. And then the next five verses give us what the discipline is. And so this is one section I could put all of that up there. We read, so the Lord delivered them, and we see that the in, the invisible hand of the providence of God is delivering them into the hand of Midian for seven years. How would you have felt, I'm going to ask a Dr. Phil question, how would you have felt if you had been in Israel during those seven years? You don't know it's only going to be for seven years, do you? Just like in Ukraine, you don't know when this war is going to end. It could be in two months. It could be in six months. It could be in five years. Nobody knows. And that's how it was for them. They had no idea when this oppression was going to end, and this oppression was great. So you have to wonder, what is God doing? This is just crazy. We've never had a famine like this in 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 all this time, and it's all brought on by President Biden. No, it was brought on not by President Biden, but by the Midianites. It wasn't brought on by Trump either or Putin, but the Midianites. The hand of Midian, verse 2, prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites, the children of Israel. This is fascinating. Think about the mechanics here. They're getting these invasions, these waves of invasions from the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East, which is just a general term for a number of other groups. And so they have to leave their homes and they have to dig out caves 
and dens and make strongholds in the in the mountains. All of this is taking place in the hill country of Samaria, uh, also called the hill country of Ephraim. The tribe of Ephraim plays an important part here. So they're having to leave home and become refugees, and they don't even have UNRWA to help them out. They just have to dig holes and go into caves and live like cavemen, literally, during this time. Because of what happens is that whenever, and that's a good translation, whenever Israel planted, in verse 3, the Midianites would come. They understood the planting cycle, and they would wait until they had, their spies told them that the Israelites had planted and then when it was time for harvest, they would come sweeping in and steal the harvest and leave just enough uh, so that the people could barely survive. Now, that's happened in modern history. That happened in Ukraine in the 19, early 1930s. There was a famine in Russia, and Stalin sent the Russian army into Ukraine to sweep up every last grain of wheat in, in Ukraine. He didn't even leave enough for them to survive for the next year. And some three or four million died that winter, and many others died in the coming coming years. And this is just this has been passed down. The Ukrainians today who are in their 30s, who are fighting for their freedom, learned of this from their grandparents who lived through this. And and they they were everybody was starving. They were starving to death because of what what the Russians did. Well, that's just a modern day example of this same kind of thing that the Midianites were doing. And so the people were starving. They're hiding, and they're, they're stealing all of, all of their produce. They left at the end of verse four. They left no sustenance for Israel. No sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. So now they have to walk everywhere. It was, it was a horrific existence. And what they would do, described in verse 5, they would come up with their livestock and their tents, as numerous as the locusts, both they and their camels, were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished. The depression that entered into Israel was the economic depression was worse than what happened in most of the world and in the United States in the early 30s. A lot worse. Because they had food they could get. There were soup lines, soup kitchens, all kinds of things. You didn't have near the level of starvation as you had in either Ukraine or here in, in this verse. So they're greatly impoverished, and they cry out to the Lord. What's missing from that? Last verse. There's no turning to the Lord. You don't have the verb shuv there. They don't turn to the Lord and they don't repent. Naham. They don't repent. They're not saying, Lord, we, we confess our sin. None of that. They just cry out to the Lord in, in misery. They probably don't know what else to do because they're ignorant because the priests have probably already apostatized and they're not learning any, anything whatsoever about the, uh, uh, about the word. So that we know the discipline lasted for seven years. The Israelites did not cry out and turn to God. They simply, I mean, they did cry out, but they didn't turn to God. And there's no indication that they're putting paganism aside. As a matter of fact, here we're told that the people cried out. That comes before the commissioning of Gideon. And what's the first thing Gideon's going to have to do? Well, he's got a clean house in his own home because his father has a, an altar to Baal there that has to be torn down uh, using the bulldozer of the day, which was a couple of bulls, a bulldozer. So they have to clean. So he's got in his own house that that, that his family, his father, he was brought up in a household that had completely assimilated to the paganism of the time, and that's the kind of households that many of us are have come from. Many other people have are living in where they have extended family or immediate family that think they're nuts for being a Christian. And this is exactly the kind of thing that was going on there. And now Gideon is, is called by the Lord, but he's come out of this background, and he's not a purist in the sense that 
uh, for example, Deborah would have been or Othniel would have been. He is from this family with this, this mixed worldview. So uh, that, that's, that's, his, that's his basic problem. Now, what happens as a result of their cry is that God sends a prophet in verse, verse 7. Let me see if I have the slide on verse 7. No. But before I get to verse 7, I'm going to relate this to Leviticus 20, 26. Uh, no, no, I'm not. Okay, so they, as a result of that, verse 7, that when they cried out, the, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. We don't know who this prophet was, but at least there was a prophet who was going to accurately communicate uh, God's indictment to the Israelites. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. That is in uh, Judges uh, 6.8. The indictment is given in uh, Judges 6.10. I did not have a slide on that. Judges 6.10, where God says, I Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. That's the indictment. They have not obeyed their voice. Why? Because they assimilated to the worldview of the culture. In the language of Romans 12.2, they were conformed to the world and not transformed by the renewing of their mind according to the Mosaic law. So this is what happens. Now, the, the, um, uh, the discipline, and we'll go past that map, is related back to Leviticus. In Leviticus 26.13, God introduces the five stages of discipline with this sentence. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. God defines himself as the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt and freed them from slavery. Look at what happens in Judges 6, 8, and 9. The Lord sent a prophet, and how does the prophet identify himself? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. This becomes a standard way in which God identifies himself. That's why it's such a big deal when Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam split and Jeroboam sets up the two golden calves in the northern kingdom and says, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. This is how you define the unique God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the Mosaic Covenant, there are these five stages or five cycles of discipline. And in verse 24 through 26, the fourth cycle of discipline uh, in the Mosaic Covenant says, if you, are, um, if you again disobey me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Each stage was a seven times more intensification. So this seven doesn't relate to the seven years of Midian. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. By what he means by that is the punishments that are outlined in the covenant, which are the five cycles of discipline. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Now, there's no mention of pestilence, but there's clearly the fact that they're being delivered into the hand of Midian, uses that language. And then in verse 26, when I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. They're going to be able to get, instead of one loaf in the oven, there's so little grain that there's going to be able to get these little tiny loaves into the oven. They'll get ten into the oven, and one is not going to satisfy. So what we see is this: the Lord is emphasizing who he is and what he is going to do. Then we get to the next section, and this starts in verse 11. So we've had the 
uh, disobedience in 1A, then we've had the uh, discipline in 1B down through 10, and now we're going to focus on the deliverance, and that's going to take us all the way through chapter 8. I'm not going to try to do 9 in this overview. So the angel of the Lord came to the uh, came and sat under the terebinth tree. That was a form of an oak tree, which was in Ophrah. Now Ophrah is in the hill country of of Samaria, and some of you were with us when we were up on Mount Gerizim with Joel Kramer. And if you look across that valley uh, to the east. On the uh, up in those hills across that valley, that's where Ophrah was located. So we'll have the maps of all that when we get there. So the angel of the Lord has appeared, and then uh, he's Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press. This means he's out of sight. He is hidden, so that he is trying to secretly get away with getting as much grain as he can before the Midianites arrive. So it tells us that it's it's harvest time. That means the Midianites are about to come. So we're getting close to it. So it's no surprise when we get into the next chapter that the Midianite army is, has arrived. And so the angel of the Lord uh, appears to him in verse in verse 12 and says, you mighty man of valor. So now we're introduced to the angel of the Lord, and we have to address the issue of what does the Bible teach about the angel of the Lord. And, and what's interesting here here is that there are six references to the angel of the Lord in a short number of verses here. So that's important. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? You may not realize it, but there's controversy over this. I remember when I was in high school, first time I was talking to uh, someone, and they said, oh, no, they'd gone to Bible college. They said, the angel of the Lord is just another angel that's not the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So there are people who teach that and people who believe that. That's not what the Scripture says at all. And what happens, we see this passage in verses 22 to 24, where Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God. This is down in verse 22. So after he's had all this conversation with the angel of the Lord, he calls him Yahweh Elohim. Now, that's blasphemy if this is just a regular angel. So he recognizes that this, uh, angel, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh Elohim, and he says, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And it was understood even by the rabbis in the period after the exile that the angel of the Lord was what they called, using an Aramaic word, the memra. Memra is an Aramaic word that means word. It's the same as logos in, in Greek. In the beginning was the word. So they would have looked at, they developed a whole theology of the memra in the intertestamental period, which absolutely fit what John said about John the Baptist in, uh, in John chapter 1, that the memra was God, but the memra was uh, not the same as God, God, the Father. There was a distinction, and that the memra was involved in creation, and that the uh, memra was the one who communicated uh, God's word to the prophets. So that's um, that they developed that, and they saw that the memra was the angel of the Lord. So the Lord, Yahweh, then the text says, not the angel of the Lord anymore, just says, then the Lord said to him, peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And to this day, that's at the time of the writing, not now, uh, this Altar is still in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So then he's going to be commissioned, and he's going to be uh, instructed that in order to carry out what God's going to tell him to do, he has to spiritually cleanse his own home, which means he has to tear down the altar to Baal. And what this says is that if you're going to have a spiritually successful home, then you need to get rid of the 
uh, pagan worldview elements that are in it. And that means that you have to recognize it's just part of sanctification that every home has elements in it that have been brought over from our uh, thinking and our culture before we were saved. And we have to get rid of that. You can't have elements of both worldviews. That's what Romans 12.2 is all about. So uh, God says, go in this power of yours and you shall deliver Israel. The word saved doesn't mean spiritual salvation. It means deliver them physically from the power of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So that's, that's where he gets his, his confidence is because God has sent him. And so Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Who does this remind you of? I come from the smallest family and the smallest clan and the smallest tribe of Benjamin. Who is that? Saul. Okay, so he's just... he's. Is Gideon trying to step into the challenge or step away from the challenge? See, that's the point. We look at Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson, all mentioned in Hebrews 11 as heroes of the faith, So, but we can't read that into everything he did. He trusted God at a critical moment in the battle against the Midianites, defeated the Midianites. They're never heard from again as, a, as an enemy of Israel, and he gets mentioned by God as a great hero of the faith. Doesn't that just give you great confidence that that somehow you might have done something worthwhile spiritually in your life, and in God's grace you're going to be praised for it? So we don't have to look and try to all be, because we can't all be David, thankfully, because David was a big spiritual failure at times too. So it puts things in perspective. And then God says to him, this is his commission. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. That's a promise. It's not a promise to you or to me, but it's a promise to, to, to uh, Gideon that you will defeat the Midianites. So when we get into the whole episode with putting out the fleece and everything, we figure out that... Gideon isn't trying to understand what God wants him to do. He's already been told what he's going to do. He's going to defeat the Midianites. So the whole putting out the fleece thing isn't trying to discover God's will, but trying to avoid God's will. And a lot of people do that kind of thing. I know that surprises you, but a lot of people do. So Gideon prepares the sacrifice. He follows the Lord's instruction And then after the Lord accepts the sacrifice, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Who does that remind you of? It ought to remind you of Jacob. When Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and afterward he named the place Peniel, because I have seen God face to face. That Hebrew word P-E-N refers to face. He says, I have seen God face to face. Penuel or Peniel means the face of God. So that's what he, he follows God's word. And he knew that God had commissioned him. So what does he do? He does what God said to do. And I've reworded this a little bit because in the King James, it's very confusing. In verse 25, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull. And then in the King James, it says uh, a, a, second, a, a bull of seven years. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. To clarify, it says, take your father's young bull and a second bull of seven years. So he's taken two bulls. He's going to have two bulldozers to tear down the altar. And that's the, the, the mandate. Tear down the altar that your father has. Cut down the wooden image that's beside it. That would be an Asherah. And build an altar to the Lord God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer uh, a burnt sacrifice, an olah, a burnt offering with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. I love the irony of this. You see, what God is doing here is this is a polemic. This is a theological argument showing the um, impotence 
of Baal and the Asherah. God is not being politically correct. He is showing the pagan that his gods and goddesses are worthless. God is not politically correct. So Gideon is going to uh, destroy the altar of Baal and then take the wood from that altar and the Asherah and burn and use that as firewood to burn the burnt offering to the Lord. So he takes ten men from among his servants, did as the Lord said to him, but because he feared his father's household, he's such a confident man. He feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day. He did it at night, but he did it. That's the point, ultimately. And when the men of the city rose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. The second bull was being offered on the altar. They could smell the barbecue. So they said to one another, Who's done this? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city went to his father, Joash, said, Bring out your son that he may die. See, they took their idolatry seriously, just like the people that live in your neighborhood take the idolatry of of uh, Islam seriously and the idolatry of Buddha seriously and take their self-idolatry seriously, and, and they want to fight you for that. They don't want you to uh, say that, no, they're wrong. If you do that, you're racist. That's because race has, is, has everything to do with everything, right? It's been redefined. doesn't matter what your ethnicity actually is. If you are not in favor of their worldview, you're just a racist. Covers everything. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. And he's cut down, what's that verse 30? I left part of it out in the pasting. Because he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So they're really upset about the Asherah because that's where they were having illicit sex. Therefore, in that day, Gideon is given a new name, He's given the name Jerob Baal because he has contended with Baal. Now, that is an extremely important statement. So in that day, he called him Jerob Baal, let Baal, and this is what his father says, that Baal plead, let Baal contend. You, you, this is the same kind of thing that happened with uh, Elisha on Mount Carmel where he went up there and he's encouraging all of the priests of Baal and the Asherah to dance and cut themselves. And uh, is Baal at the, is he in the outhouse? Is he taking a nap? What's going on? Why won't he light the fires of your altar? He's just making fun of the pagan belief system. And that's, he's saying, if, if Baal's real, Joash, Joash gets it. If Baal is real, let him contend for himself. And, of course, nothing happens because Baal is not real. So that gives us the introduction to our hero Gideon. And then we're told in verse 33, Then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east, so there's three groups, the Midianites and the Amalekites, which are historic enemy of Israel, they met the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and there was the big battle, if you remember, when, when Joshua and uh, Hur were holding up Moses' hands, arms. As long as they were up, the Israelites would win, and if he got tired and lowered them, then they would lose. And so they had to pro the two men stood on each side and propped up Moses' arms so that the Israelites would win. That was the Amalekites. That's, even though the Amalekites were technically destroyed and annihilated back in the Old Testament, not by Saul, because remember, Saul didn't kill them all. He didn't kill um, the, the king of the, the Amalekites. But later on, uh, they, were, they were probably decimated, but they probably still have a few descendants. Anyway, the Jews call any enemy of the Israelites, anybody who wants to persecute the Jews are Amalekites. The Nazis, the Germans in World War II, and all the anti-Semites are Amalekites. So that's their... That's their term for them. So they are coming together with the Midianites, and they are seeking to destroy Israel and to take that inheritance for themselves. 
And then what we read is in verse 34, a big but at the beginning of the verse. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now here is where we have the first mention of Jezreel, so I'm going to go back to the map. There we go. This is a map. I've blown it up so we can read all the letters. Uh, uh, Jezreel, the uh, town, is right here in the Jezreel Valley, which is also called the Valley of Megiddo here. And the hill that Megiddo is on is called Har, which is the Hebrew word for uh, mount, Har Megiddo. And so this is the Valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, also called the Esdralon Valley. And down here you have Mount Gilboa, which is where Saul died. And right up in this area is where you have Herod Springs. This is what we're going to read about in a minute, where uh, Gideon thinned out the 10,000 down to 300. So this is the site of the battle right in this, this area here. Uh, where the Midianites were, and then I've got a map later on. They're going to flee this way and cross over uh, the Jordan into the uh, Transjordan uh, area. So we're told the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blows the trumpet, the Abizarites gather around him, and he sends messengers throughout all of Manasseh. There are two sides to Manasseh split. So you have half of them on the uh, Cisjordan side, that's the western side of the Jordan, and half of them are going to be on the eastern side. So the tribe of Manasseh comes together, and he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali, and they came to meet him. But there's a tribe that's left out, and that's Ephraim. And Ephraim's going to take offense at that uh, later on. So now that he's got them together, Gideon begins to, I think, Gideon has second thoughts. And so he says to God, well, if you're really going to save Israel by my hand, let, let's, let's see if uh, you can pass a test. I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there's dew on the fleece only and the ground around it is dry, then I know you'll save Israel. Well, that happened. And so he's like, well, let's try it again. Don't be angry, God, but let me speak once more. Let me test. And one more, more with the fleece. Let, it, let the fleece stay dry and the ground be wet with dew. So, of course, God, God did that. But there are people who teach this as a way of discerning God's will for their life. And um, that's comparable to people who just close their eyes, open their Bible, wave their finger in the air, and point to a verse, and that's their verse for the day. So it has nothing to do with what the Bible says about knowing knowing God's Word. So that takes us down through the end of chapter 6, and now we have a situation where we we find out 32,000 have answered the call to come to war. And God's response is, that's way too many people. We're learning a lesson about what it means to trust God because the the battle is the Lord's, as we learn in many places. The battle was the Lord's with the Amalekites back in, and the battle was the Lord against the Egyptians, and the battle is the Lord's against Goliath. The battle is the Lord's with Gideon, and so God's going to teach him that. And so the people are still too many, he says. And so we're going to test them. And so they go to Herod Springs, and they are going to get the water, and he's, and God's going to determine which ones stay and which ones go based on whether they lap the water up, looking up, as if they're ready to go to battle and they're just uh, ready to lap up the water and move on, or those who get down on all four and bury their head in the water and start sucking it up, they'll, well, they're... They're too much into their own personal comfort, so they're not going to go. So he reduces them from 32,000 to 10,000 and then from 10,000 to 300. And we have to remember the principle in Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Where the battle is the Lord's, it's, it's not ours. So here's what the battle is going to look like. This gives you a, a battle map. Here we have 
the spring in Herod is the spring of Herod. This is Mount Gilboa here, so this is on the north side. This, if you go up towards the upper left, this is the Valley of Jezreel. And so the battle is going to be opposite the spring of Herod, where it gets thins out to the 300, uh, right across the valley to where the hill of Mora is, and that's where the battle takes place. Just south, like a, less than a mile, maybe a quarter of a mile, from Endor, which is where the witch of Endor will be. See, if you go to Israel and you stand up on that ridge by Megiddo and you see across the valley, you see all these places that half the Old Testament took place within your eyesight. It's just just phenomenal. So they're going to have the battle there, and then they're going to head to the south and run right by Beit Shan, which is where Saul's body is going to be hung up on the wall eventually. Here's another look at the route. Here's the hill of Mora up here on the upper left, and Endor just below Mount Tabor, which is where Deborah and Barak's forces gathered uh, before their battle. And then uh, they're going to head down, cross the Jordan in this area, go to Sukkot and Penuel or Penal, and then they'll go. They'll chase them further south. So that gives you an idea of what's going to happen there. So in Judges 7, 4, after sending them down to 10,000, the Lord says, it's still too many. Let's see how they lap up the water. And after that, there's 300 left in verse 7. And the Lord said, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let the other people go, every man, every man to his place. So God is the one who sets him. But he's not through pumping up poor little Gideon's confidence. And so that night, Gideon is going to go on a recon mission down towards the camp of the Midianites. And when he does, he hears two of the uh, uh, of the guys out on the listening post talking to each other. And one of them says to the other one, I've had a dream. He was not Martin Luther King Jr., but he still had a dream. I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. And he's like, I have no idea what this means. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Now, how did he know that? He could only know that if God revealed it to him. And here he is, an unbeliever and a Midianite. But God can do anything. He can even reveal things to unbelievers. I can think of five or six in Washington, D.C. I wish he'd reveal a few things to. But we'll go on. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. What a great statement. This is very similar to the statement that when Eleazar, who is the servant of, of Abraham, is sent back to Haran to find uh, a bride for Isaac, that when he meets Rebekah at the, at the well and he realizes this is the one that God has chosen for, for Isaac, he worships. In this context, it is a synonym for prayer. It's not a synonym for singing a trite little Jesus chorus. He worshiped. He prayed. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So Gideon is confident. The Lord has revealed this to him, and uh, so he divides the group into 300. This... um, uh, this is going to be their strategy. He divides them into three companies of a hundred each, and then they are going to each be given an AK-47 and an anti-tank javelin. No, they're going to be given a sword, which they'll have in one hand, and they'll be given a jug, a pottery jug, an empty pitcher, and Inside it, there's a torch. And so normally in a night attack like this, you would have uh, one torch for every 
50 or so men. And when every one of the 300 has a torch, it's going to look like there's about 50 times as many in the army that's attacking the Midianites. And literally the fear of God will be put into them and they will run, they'll attack each other, there'll be total confusion, and they'll run from the battlefield. And that's what we should pray should happen to the Russian army in Ukraine, is that they will just have in total internal collapse that their weapons of war will not properly function and that God will just cause internal confusion and collapse, which apparently he's been doing uh, fairly well all all along. So um, he says to his men, he says, Watch me, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you do as I do when I blow the trumpet. I and all who are with me, you also blow your trumpet. So I said sword earlier, I misspoke. They have a trumpet in one hand, they have the torch and the hidden in the jug on the other one. And when they, when they blow the trumpets, they're all to shout in unison, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Where did he get that language? He got it from the prophecy of that Midianite guard that said, this is the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. So the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabat. In other words, they're, they're headed down across the Jordan into the Transjordan area. And the men of Israel gathered together, so the other tribes gathered together and pursued the Midianites, but the Ephraimites weren't there, and they took offense. By this time, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, calling them to battle, come against the Midianites and seize them, and they will capture two princes of the Midianites. These are two of their, probably two of their generals. The word translated prince is the word sar, which means a leader, a prince, a general, any, any sort of leader. And then they, the Ephraimites capture them and kill Oreb and Zeba. And they decapitated them and brought their heads to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. But now, in beginning in chapter 8, the men of Ephraim say, why have you done this to us? They're, they're taking offense. Why didn't you call us in, into battle? And so they're reprimanding him sharply. And he's so, he handles this so wisely. He doesn't get angry with them. He's, he reasons with them. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Isn't the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, in other words, isn't what you've just done, killing the commanding generals of the Midianites, isn't that better than the vintage of Abiezer? Remember, that's his his clan. And so basically what he's saying, isn't what you just accomplished greater than what I accomplished? Because you killed their generals. And God has delivered into your hands the princes or the generals of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? So they, uh, their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So, so far what we're seeing is very positive things about, about Gideon. Now, the, wars, the battle's still going on, and so the uh, Israelites are chasing the Midianites. They cross over and they go to these two uh, settlements, these two villages, Sukkot and Penuel. And we're going to see what happens there and, and Gideon's anger towards them because in verse 5, when he comes to Sukkoth, he asks them for food because his, his army's running out of rations. They've been in this battle. They need food, and they're exhausted. And now he's pursuing the two kings of the Midianites, Zeba, uh, Zeba and Zalmunna. But the, men, uh, the leaders of Sukkoth said, no, we're not sure you're going to win yet. So we're going to hold back. Sort of reminds me of how Ukrainians are not really getting all the supplies they ought to be getting because some people in the West are just afraid they they still would think they're not going to win, that Russia is going to win, so we don't want to make Putin mad. 
so that's what they're doing. They don't want to make Zeba and Zalmuda mad at them, so they're, they're not going to give any bread to the Midianites. So Gideon says, because of this, when the Lord's delivered them into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He's going to gather up all the thorns, and they have cactus. I don't know if they had prickly pear then. They call it sabra in Hebrew. But we've seen some huge, huge prickly pear patches over over in Israel. So they're going to get all these thorns and come back, and he's going to uh, take it out on those who lived in Sukkot and Penuel. So Zeba and Zalmud are captured, and they challenge Gideon, go ahead and kill us if you really have the courage to. So Gideon did that. He killed Zeba and Zalmuda and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Isn't that interesting? Who would you say today would have crescent ornaments on their weapon systems? Doesn't take much imagining. So this is this worship of these of the moon god goes back into antiquity. So the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now this is they're showing their gratitude, and what are they offering Gideon? This is the beginning of Gideon's failure. They're offering him the kingship. Let you and your son and your grandson rule over us because you delivered us from the hand of of Midian. But Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. This is the high watermark of Gideon's spirituality. He is making the right decision. I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to rule over you, and I'm not going to establish a dynasty so that my son and my grandson rule over you. But what does Gideon do? Well, he will do two things. The first thing he does is that he uh, takes a collection of all of the gold, all the silver from the uh, plunder that they've taken from the Midianites, and he's going to make an ephod. An ephod is a priest's garment, so he's going to make a uh, a facsimile of a priest's garment out of gold and silver, and he's going to set it up. This is verse 27. He's going to set it up to be uh, to be worshipped, and that's what's going to happen. The people give him a free will offering. Verse 26. We're told the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple, so a lot of other crescent ornaments, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their their camel's neck. So he's got an enormous amount. So this must have been an enormous ephod that he built. And then we're told what? Verse 27. I don't have this up. Yeah. And Gideon made it into an ephod, set it up in his city Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot there. That's just old King James language. Basically, they are being uh, committing spiritual adultery against God. Instead of worshiping God, first commandment, you shall have no other God beside me, they are going to worship this ephod. And that is being spiritually unfaithful uh, to the Lord. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Then we're told Midian was subdued before the children of Israel. They lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the death, in the days of Gideon. And then in the next section, we're going to see the second expression of his failure. Uh, He has a concubine, and he has 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives, so he's a polygamist which was not authorized by the law. It recognized that it was a cultural thing, and so it was regulated so that it would protect the women. But this is a pagan thing now. He has many wives, and he has a concubine in Shechem who bore him a son. And what did he name his son? His name in Hebrew is Avimelech, and Melech is the word for king. 
Ab or Abba is the word for father. Avi, the I, is the suffix that means my. My father is king. So Gideon, who denies the king, who rejects the kingship, denies the offer of kingship, names his son, my father is king. There's an irony there. It is showing that he has led them into idolatry and he has become arrogant and he lays the groundwork for the next failure, which will come in chapter 9 with Abimelech's conspiracy. So what that does, it gives us an overview of what's going to happen and then we can drill down on a few things as we go through this because that that covered about 100 verses in an hour. I can do that. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study and to reflect on this whole episode, understanding its uh, overall dimensions so that when we go back and look at some of the details, they'll, they'll have a little more meaning and a little more sense. Challenge us with the fact that we must recognize, as, as Gideon did, the battle is yours, that it's not by might or by power, it's from the, by the Holy Spirit. And we have to trust in you to win the battles. And that's the whole function of the faith rest drill. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us to trust you, to memorize promises, to claim those promises in the midst of the daily battles every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.